The Bible <clears throat> is filled with metaphors reflecting the ultimate by pointing to what the ultimate is like. Because these things describing God or the meaning of life, these questions of the ultimate that the Bible addresses are too big to be quantified or qualified by one thing. One of my favorite theologians says that when we believe we fully understand capital G, God, we've made a God, lowercase g, or idol of our ability to understand. I love this because not once, but twice, I actually had to drop out of calculus. One time in high school, another time in college, <laughs> because I struggled to wrap my head around the concepts. So if I can't do calculus, what would make me think that I could fully understand the divine or the ordering of the universe? You all, I know many of you, are much more math savvy than I am. But in our own unique ways, this principle applies. We're limited and we're made that way. And so when talking about the ultimate, we use things that we know, things that we can relate to, things that we can even see ourselves in to make what is so big and immense understandable, relatable, to make it real and concrete. Because in many ways, it is. God isn't just some distant being, but God's presence is active in our lives, can be felt and is tangible, and also it is always so much more. Our passage today that Tom is about to read almost confusingly jumps around from metaphor to metaphor, leaving the reader in almost a whiplash-like state, like you've been at some Olympic-level ping-pong tournament. Are we the sheep who should not fear because God is the good shepherd? and is preparing the kingdom for us? Or are we servants awaiting the master who's been out late but will return soon, the proverbial parent waiting up for the kids to come home? Or are we the kids who've been out too late? Are we the homeowners awaiting some pillaging, a crime about to be committed? And does that make God a thief creepily climbing into our bedroom window late one night? These metaphors seem to lead us everywhere, and sometimes, confusingly, nowhere. But this passage, at least in my reading, seems to have three main points. That through these limited metaphors, the author of Luke is trying to articulate. First, is that God wants to give us the kingdom. A little like sub A for that is a question of what is the kingdom? Where does it exist? But God wants to give us the kingdom. The second point is where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And three is that we need to be attentive to God's presence that is coming at any moment. Traditionally, when this passage has been read, it's been a justification or a theologizing of the principle of delayed gratification. You can't have it now, but you can have it when you're dead. But I can't help but wonder if these metaphors are opening up another possibility. If these three main points are directing us not only to what's possible in heaven in that great by and by, 
but how we're called to live here and now. A reading from the Gospel of Luke. Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give alms. Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Be dressed for action and have your lamps lit. Be like those who are waiting for their master to return from the wedding banquet so that they may open the door for him as soon as he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master finds alert when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will fasten his belt and have them sit down to eat, and he will come and serve them. If he comes during the middle of the night or near dawn and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. But know this. If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour we do not expect. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Would you please pray with me? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorified by you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. During the pandemic, my best friend lost both of her grandparents. Their deaths were due to other things, the sad way that bodies and minds wear down over time. But in the cruel reality many faced during the pandemic, she was left wondering what to do when in spring of 2020, her grandmother died unexpectedly. They'd always thought that her grandfather would go first. He'd been, had a barrage of health concerns for years and her grandmother had been the one making the appointments, driving to the doctors, remembering the dates and ordering prescriptions. True, they were both aging, but for her grandmother, growing older seemed to happen more gently until it wasn't gentle anymore, and then it was just oh so final. My friend was the arbiter of their estate. Her mother and her aunt, her grandparents' two children, had died years before. I remember her Aunt Pammy, who would take us to the California Pizza Kitchen and then to the Nutcracker in Boston. She seemed like the epitome of a sophisticated working woman, and I was in awe. But when my friend was in, when we were in high school, during a routine procedure, her aunt, a beautiful force to be reckoned with in the world, passed. And when we were in college, after a rough battle with cancer, her mother, who threw snowballs at the neighborhood boys and made the best enchiladas that you've ever had, uh, she died quietly one night in her hospital bed as we started our senior year. And so my friend was the oldest remaining relative at just over 30. And so she took on this task of the logistics that happen after a death. I don't know how she felt, but I know I would have not felt up to that task. They needed to sell her grandparents' place and move her, grandparent, her grandfather somewhere so he could be better cared for. And it was hard, a hard move for him. 
There is the grief of the loss of his wife compounded with the grief and the loss of losing his home. But it was what was best everyone had agreed. But he didn't live long after that decision. He knew how he wanted to live and he knew when he was ready to die. And so my friend and her husband flew with their newborn down to Texas in the pandemic to clean out her grandparents' condo. And it felt like too much. But life is nothing for us all than the succession of the best next step. And so stumbling forward in uncertainty, my friend figured out how to order a dumpster. And while she lovingly went through photos and mementos, they also got rid of the boxes and boxes of National Geographic magazines that her, her grandparents had accumulated, I think, over 10 years. And all the, the odds and ends that make up a life. When opening the garage, my friend said she took a deep breath at the boxes that were piled there. And there was a set of boxes in the corner that had seemed to be long forgotten, dust, dust having settled on top. And when opening the boxes, they found that these boxes were in fact crates or cases of really nice champagne that our grandparents had saved for some special occasion. Really nice champagne that they never got to drink. They never enjoyed the gift in life that that was, always waiting for the next big celebration. They died before a thing they deemed worthy enough of their champagne came along. I pray that now they're getting to enjoy the most spectacular champagne ever in heaven. But when debating about what next steps to take in life, my friend and I will now sometimes text each other, drink the damn champagne. Inherent in those words, we both know that there's so much that we can't take with us when we leave this life in a way that is so much bigger than any bubbly beverage. Our passage that Tom read for us today is often used to promote this idea that waiting is a holy thing. Don't worry about what you have now because we will have what we need we will have our reward in heaven. This kind of thinking is actually has a label in theological spheres. It's called an apocalyptic eschatology. And it was often used to give hope to people. When life felt terrible and unmanageable, people of faith needed to cling that it would someday, somehow, get better. That is God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This kind of thinking was also used throughout history to keep folks oppressed. You aren't meant to want more than what you have now, because what really matters is that promise that God will give you in that sweet by and by in the kingdom. That's what really matters. I firmly believe in that message that there will be something sweet and wonderful in ways that we can't even imagine when we leave this world. But I also believe that there are things that are sweet and wonderful and that God wants for us now in this life too. 
And so I firmly believe the first message of this passage, that God does want to give us the kingdom and that God takes pleasure in wanting us to have that kingdom. But I also believe that God doesn't want the kingdom just to be some far-off dream. In our world, that can feel so apocalyptic at times, in the midst of wars and pandemics and economic uncertainty, imagining God's kingdom here can sometimes feel Pollyannic or naive, But I wonder if imagining God's kingdom here, breaking into the messiness of this world, is what Christians long ago believed. And maybe it's what we need to believe too. We even prayed earlier today in this place that God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. I believe the abundance God promises is possible now. And also, when we, and it also is here now when we relish in the beauty and the wonder and the awe of this earth, this life, this brief moment that we've all been gifted between eternities. But what does abundance look like? What does it mean? What is our treasure truly? And this question brings us to the second point of the passage that Where our treasure is, there too will be our heart. What the author of Luke is inviting us to explore is what it means to live a good life. Or what do we truly find valuable? What is truly treasured for us? Jesus here gives us great examples in his life of what is truly important. Jesus is a man who always asks more questions than he gives answers. I think about how much I've tried to be the person confident in providing answers. But I wonder if there's something holy being invited into a sense of of questioning and curiosity in our lives. Jesus healed and helped people without a regard to societal conventions, disregarding the ways that the judgment of others or the rules of his time and place got in the way of love. We treasure the worth and dignity of all of God's people. Jesus ate meals around tables with a variety of people from many walks of life. He called them to be fed and told them that they too belonged. And we treasure community. We treasure the ways that table fellowship transforms others and us too. And Jesus, even in his itinerant life, as he traveled around, he enjoyed life. He took time to rest. He took time to go to the mountains or to the sea to pray. And we treasure rest as holy and an essential act to our humanity. We see in Jesus that he gave so that others may have enough. And Jesus even allows himself luxury on occasion, to be anointed with expensive oil. We recognize the gift of life, the treasure that generosity even can bring. And we treasure the opportunity to savor and relish this life in all of its beauty. The things we treasure, the things we give our heart to, 
They are what will make our kingdom of heaven here on earth. Or they can make our hell. Now, I don't, I don't always get it right. But we try to create God's kingdoms in the ways that we can. Because God isn't just some far-off being content to sit and observe. When I find the language of God coming as a thief problematic, I think the sentiment of the passage, though, is true. That we never know the ways that God will come into our everyday lives. And I wonder, though, if often it isn't even God coming into our everyday life, but if God is already there. And often that breaking in is an an opening of our own eyes, a receptiveness, an attitude or posture that we take to recognize God's already presence with us. God is in our holy wondering and wandering. God is there in the holy work of healing. God is there as as we repair fractured relationships and help in broken communities, as we repair the sins of our world that have caused us to not live by Christ's mandate of love. God is in moments of rest, and God is with us as we go about our work. So friends, may we not wait, storing up our treasures just in heaven in some far-off place, but may we enjoy this life, May we drink the champagne here as it is in heaven. And may we also relish the beauty, the wonder, the awe, the celebration. May we feel God with us, not only in the great by and by, but now. In these pews that we sit in. In these places that we find ourselves. When Christ gathered with his closest friend all those years ago on the night before his death, I love to think that he threw a dinner party for those that were closest to him, reminding us how precious life is and how sacred love shared is. May we feel that love at this table and at all the tables where we find ourselves. May we feel God calling us to be recipients of the kingdom now. And may we feel God with us celebrating, enjoying this life, truly living it and celebrating it. May it be so for me and for each and every one of you. Amen.